Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. That will be our scripture reading for this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 20, excuse me, 23 to 31. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we do need you. Uh, We need you right now. Uh, We need you right now. I need you right now to speak uh, your word uh, through me. I need you to stop me from saying things that are untrue and enabling me to uh, enable me to say things that are true. Uh, We need you to uh, soften our hearts and open us up that we would receive your word, that we would hear it and believe it, and, uh, and take it into our hearts and be changed by it, that we would be uh, better enabled to uh, rejoice in you and to serve you and to live for you in the world. So, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Uh, we need your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit, Father, uh, that as we read and hear, uh, you would be at work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said to the Holy Spirit, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I need this sermon more than you do. Uh, When I face adversity, uh, I tend to either wallow in self-pity or run and hide someplace safe or uh, retreat into pleasures, just try to make myself happy and hope that the problem goes away. And I quickly forget that I'm not alone in this. Uh, I forget that there is a God who's in control. Uh, I forget that the world is really about more than just me and my problems, And I forget that the Holy Spirit is there to give me the resources I need to live life in a way that honors God. And so I need this sermon probably more than you do. And yet I'm willing to bet that some of you, at least, will benefit from it as well. Um, It's God's word, after all, and God promises that his word will not return void, but will bear fruit, will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. And so that's uh, my prayer this morning, that God's word would do just that, that it would accomplish 
the purpose for which he has sent it. Uh, We're looking at Acts chapter 4, just a few verses in the middle of Acts 4 this morning, verses 23 to 31. And we're going to be thinking about adversity and how to face it. Uh, If you want, you can follow along on the outline. It's on the back of your bulletin. Uh, There are sort of three main points and then a couple of uh, sub-points under the the last. Uh, The three main points we'll be looking at are the fact that we face adversity. Uh, We'll talk about how not to face adversity and then how to face it. Uh, So first, the, the fact the fact that we face uh, adversity. Um, this is, of course, true whether you are 5 or 85. Uh, sometimes uh, people won't like us. Uh, we'll face trouble. Sometimes people don't like us uh, because we're not likable people. Um, of course, that's on us, uh, right? Uh, you never want to use the name of Jesus to justify uh, being a jerk to those around you. Um, you know, how, how you might do that. Oh, he doesn't like me. It's just because I'm a Christian, um, no, maybe it's just because you were rude, right? Maybe that's why they don't like you. But, uh, you know, I know nobody in here falls into that category. Uh, I do sometimes. Uh, I know I do. Um, I can, be, uh, I can uh, be rude with the best of them, but that's not quite what we're talking about here. Um, the apostles were arrested. You may remember back in chapter 4, verse 2, uh, They were arrested because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And uh, they uh, were opposed because of their commitment to Jesus. They were arrested, they were examined, they were threatened, held overnight, but then ultimately released. And uh, they, they were facing opposition, right? They were facing adversity. And now, oftentimes, we uh, Christians have talked about the adversity that, that we face or the opposition that we face uh, under three terms, right? Three enemies that we face every day. Uh, you, you may be familiar with them, right? The, the devil, uh, the world, and the flesh. And uh, the first, Scripture says that we all have an enemy, an adversary, uh, the devil. You know, we often talk about adversity as if it were some kind of impersonal force that was against us. Uh, But really, there's no such thing. Um, We live in a personal universe. We stand before a personal God. That is a God who is a a person, a God with whom we have a relationship. And uh, we have a personal enemy, right? Satan, the evil one. Uh, that, that doesn't mean he's our own personal enemy, like our own personal trainer or something like that, right? But, but he is personal in the sense that, that he, he's not impersonal, right? He's not like a rock or a tree. He's not a force. Uh, he is a personal being who has a will that is set against us. The devil is real, and he opposes the people of God. We read about that a moment ago in 1 Peter 5. This kind of opposition is not new, right? It, We see it as far back as Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible where Satan is opposing the people of God. Uh, Peter warns in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter calls us to be sober-minded because there is one who opposes us. Um, Paul says elsewhere that, that we are to be aware of Satan's schemes Uh, so that we're not outwitted by him. Um, Be aware of Satan's schemes. What are are those schemes? What are those methods that Satan uses? Uh, 
you know, oftentimes when we think about the devil and, and the demonic, we think about poltergeist, right? We think about the stuff of movies. Uh, but that's not it, right? And in fact, that's one of the reasons Satan is so effective, because every time we think about his work, we just, he, he keeps us thinking about the demonic as sort of this super spiritual occult type stuff. And either it's A, something that we just don't experience so we don't have to bother with it, or B, we think it's just the stuff of fairy tales. But either way, we don't actually think about his, uh, his, him opposing us. Uh, so, so how does Satan work? Well, he works in actually very mundane kinds of ways. Uh, there are four sort of categories of things that we see in Scripture again and again. He works through deception, right? inviting us to believe lies, encouraging us, pushing us in that direction. Deception and temptation, right? luring us into sin, uh, drawing us, right? uh, showing us the bait uh, for some sin and Hiding the hook, as one Puritan put it. Um, he works through accusation, guilting us away from our God so that we just, we, you know, we feel so bad. There's no God, no way God could ever forgive me, and so I'll just, I'll just keep away. Uh, he works through oppression, uh, using hardships and trials to drive a wedge between us and our Father. Uh, you saw that, you see that in the book of Job, or at least that, uh, that attempt in the book of Job. So, you know, uh, as we think about Satan's work, his deception, his accusation, his temptation, his oppression, right? What, what lies do you believe? Um, where do you allow the world to tell you what is true and right and good instead of Scripture? Um, where have you put worldly joys above your delight in your Father? Where are you weighed down by guilt? Do you have a hard time believing that Jesus could actually forgive you, as sinful as you are? Where are your trials beginning to wear you down? Right? Have you begun to believe the lie that uh, your trouble means God doesn't love you or that he has abandoned you? Or even if you don't think that, you wouldn't go that far. Do you, do you, have you begun to think that, that God doesn't do much good in your life? He may be there. He hasn't abandoned you. But really, what difference does it make after all? Those, are the, those kinds of lies, those kinds of deceptions and accusations, those are the work of Satan. Right? He, our, our adversary opposing us. Um, we need to call them what they are. Of course, our adversity doesn't end there. Uh, Satan not only lies and tempts and guilts and oppresses, he often does that through the world around us. Um, and so, again, back in Genesis 3, God promises enmity, you may remember, and that, that is this lifelong struggle between the children of the serpent and the children of Eve. And uh, while this culminates in the cross, this sort of battle between those who oppose God and those who uh, submit to him, this, that culminates in the cross, but it's really an ongoing struggle, isn't it? Uh, there is a real sense in which the world, at least as a whole, uh, has sided with the evil one, according to Scripture. And whether that comes out as uh, sort of those in authority uh, at times persecuting the people of God. You see that throughout the world uh, at different times in different places. Uh, or whether that's just the spirit of the age, right? The tone or the whim or the mood of culture where, you know, some things about Christianity are just kind of culturally suspect and pushed to the side or, or um, reacted against. Uh, you know, certain attitudes in our day, right? Uh, 
certain attitudes toward the LGBTQ community, um, toward gender, toward gender roles, uh, that just to speak them in our culture sometimes might be labeled as hate speech, or um, even careful language about gender and sexuality uh, from a Christian perspective might lead to someone being uh, labeled as a bigot. Uh, Now, of course, we're not excusing inflammatory rhetoric or name-calling, but but how do we lovingly state uh, the truth even when it's unpopular with the world around us? Uh, more bo- broadly, uh, Christianity just in general makes moral claims, doesn't it? Uh, it Christianity teaches uh, about Jesus as an exclusive Savior. And uh, we, we don't claim necessarily to have exclusive access to all truth, right? As if no one else had any truth. Um, all truth is God's truth, as someone else put it. Many people made in the image of God look around at God's world and know certain things. Uh, But we do claim both moral absolutes from the scriptures and we claim to have an exclusive Savior. Jesus alone is the Savior of sinners. Uh, There is a right and wrong. Jesus alone can save us when we fall short from that. Well, the world rejects both of those things, doesn't it? It rejects moral absolutes that are true for everyone. It spurns all kinds of exclusivity. And so these are points of adversity in our culture, points of opposition, points of conflict with the world around us. Even when the world looks like it's on our side, uh, often it has a kind of knife behind its back, right? Temptations to sin uh, are, uh, sin is unto death. Temptation is to sin and sin is unto death, right? So any temptations to sin we know will ultimately destroy and harm us. Uh, the world wants us to join in with its debauchery, as we read in First Peter. And we must, uh, on some level, protect our hearts. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Of course, not only do we have a, a spiritual adversary, uh, the devil, who works through the, the world around us, but we have an enemy within, don't we? Uh, we, we don't need any enemy outside. We have an enemy uh, in our own hearts. Uh, sometimes this is called the flesh, uh, that our hearts are misoriented to created things rather than to the glory of God. And so we end up pursuing those created things, things that are good in and of themselves, uh, but we pursue them instead of God. So we might pursue security, right? That's not a bad thing, but it's not an ultimate thing either. So if we pursue that above all else, right, we're pursuing it instead of God. We might pursue family, another good thing, but has it taken the place of God in our life? We might pursue pleasure or learning or popularity. None of those in and of themselves are bad, uh, but neither are they ultimate. And yet because of the misorientation of our hearts, we pursue them instead of God. And so we find an adversary within us Right? We have these conflicting desires, desires for created things, which have come to oppose our desire for our Creator. And so we face all kinds of adversity, don't we? Right? The, the devil is our great adversary. Uh, sometimes people uh, don't like us. The world, culture around us at points will oppose uh, the Scriptures. Even our own hearts join in in a sort of self-inflicted disorder, right? So, so large and small, whether shamed or martyred or just conflicted, right? Adversity is real. We find ourselves in the midst of conflict. So how do we not face this conflict? What's the wrong way of facing it? I want you to notice, even as we think about Peter and John, as they uh, dealt with uh, the, the conflict 
in Acts 4, uh, notice how they did not respond. Uh, they, they were arrested by the religious leaders early on in the chapter. Uh, they were brought before them to give an answer for all that was going on. How do we often respond right, to opposition at this point? Well, however many different ways you might come up with, they mostly fall into three categories. Uh, they'll be fairly familiar to you, right? They fight or flight or follow. Um, notice Peter and John don't fight. Uh, this, this, uh, this is the response of the zealots in Jesus' day, right? They were the group of Jews that were ready to take up arms against the Romans. Um, this is often our response to conflict of any kind. Someone does something we don't like and we attack. Uh, this is often our, our response to culture as well. Uh, we demonize those who disagree with the church. We attack them rather than engage with their ideas or argue with their ideas. Uh, we allow ourselves to get worked up into a frenzy. And sometimes uh, that, this kind of uh, approach is seen as the strategy of sort of the former religious right or the moral majority once upon a time, the, the attitude behind the culture wars, uh, that we just use worldly power to pursue spiritual ends. And if we can just arrest the sort of the power of uh, p- politics, then we can, we can move Christianity forward in the world. Uh, now, Peter is bold. Right? He is bold, but he doesn't fight. It doesn't, uh, doesn't end in blows. He stood before the authorities. He answered them in the name of Jesus. He didn't fight his way out of prison. He, he didn't uh, go and raise an army to overthrow the false religious leaders after he was set free. He didn't use worldly means to fight back. Right? He didn't fight. He didn't, he didn't try to dominate by force. He didn't try to force people into acceptance of the gospel. He didn't fight. Neither did he flee. I mean, he could have just run. Uh, after they let him go, he, he could have encouraged the church to just leave Jerusalem, head to the hills, and start a commune in the mountains. This is the way of the, the Essenes in Jesus' day, another uh, sect. Uh, they removed themselves from life around them. They went off and lived in the wilderness. Uh, this is a caricature sometimes of the monastic movement, hiding out from the world in a monastery somewhere. It is a bit of a caricature, but uh, we, we all know what we mean when we talk about that. Uh, today, we sometimes refer to this as kind of the Christian ghetto, right? living uh, completely, a completely separate life from the world, having no contact with the world around you, um, often with the mindset that you, you don't want to be polluted by the world, and so you, so you just avoid it at all costs. And so we hide out. We hide out in Christian cliques, hoping that the world... Uh, hoping that the world will just kind of go away and uh, won't bother us, won't make its way in to our little group. Peter and friend, uh, friends, though, don't do that. They don't fight, uh, neither do they flee, neither do they just give in and follow uh, the world around them. Uh, they don't conform, right? They don't give in to the world's demands. Notice the religious leaders in verse 18, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus And they responded in verses 19 and 20, uh, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, uh, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the world brought its best, right? The disciples uh, were arrested, they were bullied, they were threatened, uh, but they did not give in, they did not conform, they did not follow along. Uh, And uh, this is often what we do when we... uh, when we are faced with difficulty, we just kind of go with the flow, try not to make waves, and hope everything works out in the end. Uh, they didn't do that. You know, e- these three different ways are tempting to either 
fight back using worldly uh, methods or just run away and flee or even follow and conform. They're tempting because they all have a little bit of truth in them, right? Um, you know, the church, in, on the one, in one hand, is on the offensive, uh, and yet we don't fight with the weapons of this world, right? There is a battle. Scripture talks about a battle, but we don't fight with the weapons of this world. Um, the church is separate from the world, uh, but we are nevertheless called to live in it. We're called to be a part of it, even though we're separate from it. Uh, the church shouldn't seek to you know, make waves, especially on things which are not biblical issues. Uh, there are certain aspects of culture that are neutral that we can participate in and enjoy, um, and yet sometimes waves are inevitable, right? There are, there are lines, and uh, sometimes we can't follow. We can't just go along with the world around us. So there's some truth in each of these things, but uh, anyone pushed to the extreme becomes uh, a false response, fighting or fleeing or following the world. So right, how, how do we face adversity then? Um, most of that right, is, is really built up to our passage. It's the context the first half of chapter 4, to our text. How do we face adversity according to Acts chapter 4 here? Um, Four things. First, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. After Peter and John are let out of prison, the first thing they do is go to their friends. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Uh, This doesn't need to be a long point, but it's an important one. Uh, Whatever adversity you face in this life, you're not meant to go it alone. Um, Christ saves us out of the world and into the church. From the beginning, God said it's not good for man to be alone, right? You're not meant uh, to be a Christian divorced from the church, out on your own, doing your own thing. We need one another in the body of Christ. This is especially true in the midst of adversity and trials, right? With all of our temptations to, to fight or to flee or to follow, right? We need one another to encourage us to stay the course, which means we need to be committed to one another. Uh, not simply showing up Sunday mornings, uh, not uh, holding one another at arm's length, uh, but we need to be in one another's business, I don't know how that makes you feel uh, to think about that, how uncomfortable that is. But, but think about these verses in Scripture. We are called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That means we need to know who is weeping and who is rejoicing. Right? We can't weep with those who weep in the body if we don't know that they're weeping. We can't rejoice with those who rejoice in the body if we don't know that they're rejoicing. Right? There has to be some uh, level of intimacy in order to be able to Follow those commands. Or uh, uh, there are other places. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we confess our sins to everyone in the room. Uh, there, there are, there's a way of doing this that's appropriate and a way that's not. But, but if you don't have someone in the church uh, with whom you share your struggles with sin... Uh, then you're not able to live out this verse, right? Confess your sins to one another, right? Who, who do you have in the body that you're able to talk to about your own struggles, about your own sin? Uh, if you hold the church at arm's length, right, and never talk about your struggles with anyone, it will end up being to the detriment of your own soul and 
to the weakening of the body, right? Because it's, you're, you're withdrawing from intimacy, that, the kind of intimacy that holds the body together. So how do we face adversity? Well, whether external or internal, spiritual or physical, we, we must not face it alone, I know community is hard and often messy. Uh, I know we have so many excuses. Well, no, no one has opened up to me. Why would I open up to anyone else? Or no one has asked me how I'm doing. Why would I engage with them? Uh, we can do that. We can blame other people. Or uh, we can take the first step, right, and pursue deep community with the people around us. Try to get to know them and uh, share life with them. So first thing, don't go it alone. Second, uh, trust in our sovereign God. Uh, the first thing community, the community does together is they pray. Um, and their prayer is actually pretty amazing. Notice verse 24, the beginning of it, when they heard it, when they heard what had happened, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Right? Uh, they, they pray. They don't pray on their own. Right? They pray together. Again, that's the last point. But they pray to the sovereign Lord, right? to the one who uh, by his power made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything else. Right? He is sovereign. That is, he's the controller, uh, uh, the in control. He's the ruler of the world because he made all things. Everything came from his hand. Uh, and yet they go on uh, later to talk about those who opposed Jesus. And uh, they pray, they gather together, and look at verse 28, they gather together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Uh, See, God is not only the sovereign ruler because he created all things, uh, but he is still in control even to this day, even in control of the opposition. Uh, Luther, at least Martin Luther, supposedly said at one point that the devil is God's devil, Right? Nothing is outside of God's sovereign hand. Uh, when difficulties happen to you, they are not outside of God's control. God has not fallen asleep. Right? He, he didn't forget about you. It didn't just slip by by accident. What happens in life is according to God's hand and plan. Um, now, for, for some of us, this is actually more bothersome than comforting. Right? It's maybe a little bit confusing, maybe downright distasteful that God might be in control here. God is in control of this mess, right? God is in control of all of this. Well, uh, yes. I mean, we really only have two options, right? Either God is in control or he is not. Um, But Paul assures us in Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together, all things together for the good of those who love him. Um, Even in, in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is sort of reflecting on some of his struggles, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, right? These struggles are going somewhere. We have a hope in the midst of them. And it's because God is in control that we can hope. Uh, As someone said to me this week, and I don't remember who, uh, maybe somebody in this room, I I have no idea. Uh, But they said, uh, when we get to heaven, all of our trouble that we endured in this life will be like one night in a bad hotel. Somebody in here said that. And why will it be that way? Well, it'll be that way because we have now moved into our Father's mansion, and that hotel will be history. Uh, we cannot comprehend what God is doing in this mess. Uh, and, and, of course, that's what bothers us so much, right? We don't understand, right? We ask questions like, why would God? Um, but that's just it, right? We, we don't understand. We don't know. We can't comprehend. And so right now, by faith, 
we know our Father has a plan and a purpose for what's going on. Again, he didn't fall asleep, right? This didn't just slip by him while he wasn't looking, right? He has a plan and a purpose for what is going on. Whatever you're going through, your Father is at work. He is the sovereign Lord, right? He is good. He knows what is best for you. He's working that out in ways that we cannot comprehend. Trust your sovereign Father. He's in control, even of your struggles. So how do we face adversity? First, we don't go it alone. Uh, Second, trust in our sovereign God. Third, remember that this is about Jesus. Um, Notice in their prayer, they talk very little about themselves. Their focus is on how Jesus fulfills Scripture. (laughs) That's their focus. Uh, Now, when you're facing suffering, uh, it's probably true that the first thing that comes to your mind is not uh, sort of an Old Testament hermeneutic about how Jesus fulfills Scripture. (laughs) Right? Uh, You're not thinking Bible study principles. You're thinking, this hurts. That's what pain often does, right? It shrinks our awareness of life to the size of our pain. And I, I sometimes get migraines, and I don't know if you've ever gotten uh, a, a migraine, but when you get a migraine, oftentimes there's so much pain that uh, sometimes you get nauseous just from the pain. And um, you're not thinking about anything outside of the pain at all, right? Maybe, maybe you can sort of eke out, uh, please God, let this stop. And that's about as far as it can go, right? Um, and, of course, that's not bad. If you can get that out, right, in the midst of the pain, you can pray that to God, praise God. But you're not thinking beyond the pain. Uh, and, and that sort of uh, in large view is what pain always does, right? It shrinks our world to the size of our pain. Uh, and yet in the midst of adversity, what does the early church do? They back up. <laughs> they actually zoom out. Uh, They get sort of the panorama, the big picture, and they do that by listening to Scripture. Scripture orients them in the midst of their adversity, and it orients them to Jesus. Uh, So they pray, saying, God, uh, verse 25, uh, God, you, uh, through the mouth of your servant, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Um, So they acknowledge, right, that David's words are are God's words by the mediation of the Spirit. Uh, There's sort of a whole doctrine of inspiration uh, of Scripture right here in this verse, uh, that these words are God's words by the Spirit through David. Um, But then then Peter, or then uh, as they pray, the group, quotes Psalm 2. So they acknowledge this is God's word, and then they quote Psalm 2 in verses 25 uh, and following. They say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so they're facing adversity, they're praying, they're crying out to God, and what did they do? They, they reflect on Scripture and how Jesus fulfills Scripture. Um, they, they're not taking this, their troubles personally, which is often the first thing that we do. It's, uh, you know, something offends us, someone offends us, and we immediately take it personally. As if, as if it's all about us. The early church saw their story, though, in the context of the story of Jesus. This is about him. This is about the fulfillment of what God has 
promised in Scripture. And so Psalm 2 is this great psalm about the opposition uh, uh, to God and, and to his king, his anointed Messiah uh, or Christ, who is called God's son in Psalm 2. And the psalm um, uh, not only gives, within the context of Psalm 2, not only does God promise the, the king the land of Israel, uh, the land of Canaan, but he also says that he will give him all the nations as his inheritance. And so the psalm includes this expansion of the Abrahamic promise uh, that God would give his son, this king, uh, all the nations. And yet the psalm also promises that the nations would rebel with their rulers and their kings and set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And so this psalm, clearly the early church very quickly saw this psalm as being fulfilled in Jesus who is God's son, par excellence, right? Who, who Scripture told us ahead of time that Jesus would face opposition as the one destined to rule the world. The early church saw their adversity in light then of the adversity of Jesus. Right? Because we belong to Jesus and his kingdom, we will face opposition as well. And Jesus said the same thing. He once said in John 15, uh, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And now Psalm 2 goes on to say, though, that the king will subdue the nations. And uh, so even in the midst of the trouble and, and, and adversity, we can know that one day, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Jesus will finally, as king, place all things under his feet. That's our hope, that though he struggled and, and though he suffered, uh, he rose from the dead, and he will return and place all things under his feet. In the meantime, however, because the world opposes him, the world will oppose us. Because Satan was his adversary, Satan will be our adversary. Because our crooked hearts rail against his rule, they will bring turmoil into our lives. The battle is really against him, not about us. So when we experience trouble and pain, we, we shouldn't allow those to uh, shrink our world to the size of our pain. But remember that our story is really part of a much larger story of Jesus. And that Jesus, while facing suffering and death, he rose victorious. And that is our hope as well, right? that one day we will rise. This trouble will end. He will return and put all things right. And we rest in that. How we respond to trouble now, of course, shows uh, where our hope is. So how do we face adversity? Adversity, one, uh, we don't go it alone. Two, we trust in our sovereign God. Three, three, we remember that this is about Jesus, right? This is about Jesus and not about us. Fourth, we live in dependence upon the Spirit. Uh, their prayer is a really uh, amazing model of understanding Scripture and applying it to life, right? Their, their uh, prayer moves from the Creator God to understanding Jesus in light of Scripture to understanding our circumstances in light of Jesus, uh, and it's a great model of application for Scripture. They start with God the Father, they move to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of Scripture, and then and only then do they view their story as a small part of this larger story of Jesus. In, in the midst, though, of our uh, troubles and opposition, in the midst of their trouble and opposition, and in the midst of their adversity, what do they pray for? They pray lots of things, but what requests do they actually make? 
what do they pray for in the midst of their struggles? Here's what most of us pray for. Uh, Lord, make it stop. Lord, take it away, whatever it is. Take away the pain, take away the trouble, take away the brokenness, take away the adversity. And when we think of our sufferings, when we think of our trials, whatever they are, our goal is just to try to fix it, just, just fix life, make it better uh, right now. And I can only imagine that this is, would be even more true today than 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago because we have uh, today sort of amazing control over our environment, or at least we think we do. Um, we, we create tunnels through mountains that were once impassable, right? We, we harness the wind to create energy. Uh, we do all kinds of amazing things. And um, if we don't like something in the world, what do we do? We just change it. We just make it different, right? We use technology and fix it. Uh, of course, then we run into things like hurricanes, and we realize that actually we're not quite as in control as we thought we were, but... You know, in a few months, we'll, we'll be rebuilding houses and things like that, and then, and then we'll once again live in the illusion that we're in control. And I once heard someone say, I have no idea who it was, uh, that it used to be that virtue was adapting yourself to your circumstance, right? So whatever your circumstance is, right, you need, you need patience, you need peace, you need courage, whatever it is. Circumstances is sort of the reality. You need to adapt your own heart to that circumstance, um, to endure, right, to struggle, whatever it is. Uh, but nowadays, our goal is simply to adapt our circumstances to ourselves, right? And, and uh, we've, we've done away with virtue as a whole category uh, in that sense. Our desires remain, our circumstances must change. We just make it better, we just fix it, whatever it is. Um, that's actually what makes their prayer request so odd to us. They don't pray what you might think, God end the opposition. God put an end to uh, the persecution that we're facing before it even starts, because it's only going to get worse as the book of Acts goes along. Right? They don't pray, God, just, just let this adversity stop. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray for circumstantial peace. They pray for boldness and courage to face the challenge. Uh, They don't pray, God, take away our trouble, but God, give us courage to keep serving you in the face of our troubles. Uh, And God, keep being at work to give previews of your coming kingdom through us, right? They pray for God's spirit to keep being at work and to give them boldness. They never ask for their trouble to end, only that God will be glorified through them in the midst of that trouble. That's incredible, I think, to us. Uh, Now, of course, it's, it's not wrong to ask for trouble to be over. In fact, uh, we pray that every time we pray with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Right? What, what is that cry of the psalmist? That's the cry of the psalmist for the trouble to be done. Uh, we pray uh, that every time we pray with John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What is that? It's a prayer for the trouble to be done. Uh, but our focus in the moment uh, is not changed circumstances, but our own hearts. That's what it it needs to be, our own changed heart. Father, make me bold. Make me courageous. Make me patient. Make me kind in the midst of these various trials so that I can honor you in the struggle. And, of course, God answers their prayer uh, by bearing witness to his presence through shaking the house, right? So there's this earthquake. 
similar to the earthquakes that happened at Sinai or other times in history when God uh, showed up in miraculous ways throughout, you read through the Old Testament. Um, so God shows that he's hearing their prayer, and then he, verse 31, fills them with his spirit so that they can continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And of course, here's the point. You know, how, how will we ever persevere through adversity? Not simply by asking for it all to be over. We can ask for that for sure, right? You can pray, lay your cares at God's feet. You should ask for that. But Jesus promised in the world you will have trouble. And so trouble is a given. Uh, trouble is a constant in this life. So how are we going to persevere? One trouble goes away, right? Another will come. Okay, how are we going to persevere? By living in conscious daily dependence upon the Spirit, right? To make us who we need to be in the moment. Um, in the face of adversity, we need boldness, right? To speak God's word without shrinking back or to love and to serve those around us uh, without giving up. Again, how often are we tempted uh, not to say something because we're afraid of the way people will respond, afraid of rejection or afraid of being shamed for being a Christian? Uh, we need boldness, right? Boldness that only comes from the Holy Spirit. How do we get that boldness? Well, through conscious dependence upon the Spirit. Uh, how do we do that? How do we consciously depend on the Spirit? Well, how do they do it? Look at uh, verse 29, right? They pray, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They ask God to change them. Father, give us this boldness. Give, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And Jesus once said, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Such a great verse for so many reasons. But uh, <laughs> Jesus is so honest. That's one of the great reasons. Um, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, uh, how much more will the Father in heaven, who is not evil, right? Who is good, who, who uh, is perfect in every way, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Right? How do we rely on the Holy Spirit? We ask for God to be at work in our midst. So how do we face adversity? First, we don't go it alone. Uh, God saves us out of the world and into the church. Right? We need one another in this struggle. Second, we trust in our sovereign God. He is in control. Uh, even in uh, your troubles, he is at work for your good and his glory in the midst of those things. He knows what is best for you. He's working out what is best for you. Um, trust him and, and, and wait. Wait to see uh, what he will do. Third, remember that this is about Jesus, that our troubles are not ultimately about us, whatever they are. Uh, Jesus is the object of the world's hostility. Uh, he's the object of Satan's hostility. How we respond to difficulty shows the glory of Jesus in our midst, right? Because we, we're showing that we're living for uh, him and not for ourselves. Fourth, live in dependence upon the Spirit. The Father gives the Spirit to those who ask him. So let's pray. Our Father, we... Uh, we we know that we endure struggles, trials, troubles every day, small sometimes, larger at other times. Um, we pray that you would enable us to face those struggles in a way that brings honor to you. Uh, help us to face them uh, with boldness, boldness that can only come from your Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, forgive us for the many ways that we have shrunk back, that we have uh, tried to fight using the world's means or we have 
just run away, tried to avoid, or we have just given in and, and conformed to this world. Father, forgive us for those things, and we pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, that we would be bold uh, to face the struggles of life in a way that shows that we are uh, trusting in our sovereign God and that we are remembering that the story is really about Jesus and not us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.